Chapter Six, Part One of the Night Operator by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Operator, Chapter Six: The Age Limit, Part One. As its scarred and battle-torn colors are the glory of a regiment, brave testimony of hard-fought fields where men were men, so too the Hill Division is its tradition. And there are names there, too, on the honor roll, not famous, not worldwide, not on every tongue, but names that in railroading will never die. The years have gone since men fought and conquered the sullen gray-walled Rockies and shackled them with steel and iron and laid their lives on the altar of one of the mightiest engineering triumphs the world has ever known. But the years have dimmed no memory have only brought achievement into clearer focus and honor to its fullness where honor is due. They tell the stories of those days yet, as they always will tell them, at night in the roundhouse over the soft purr of steam, with the yellow flicker of the oil lamps on the group clustered around the pilot of a 1600-class mountain greyhound. And the telling is as though men stood erect, bareheaded, at salute, to the passing of the old guard." heroes they never called themselves that never thought of themselves in that way those old fellows who have left their stories their uniform was a suit of overalls their decorations the grime that came with the day's work just railroad men hard-tongued hard-fisted hard-faced rough without much polish perhaps as some rank polish with hearts that were right and big as a woman's that was all McCaffery. Dan McCaffery was one of these. This is old Dan McCaffery's story. McCaffery? Dan was an engineer, one of the old-timers, blue-eyed, thin. But you'd never get old Dan that way. He wouldn't look natural. You've got to put him in the cab of the 304, leaning out of the window, way out thin as a bent toothpick, and pounding down the gorge and around into the straight, making for the big cloud yards, with a string of buff-colored coaches jouncing after him, and himself bouncing up and down in his seat like an animated piece of rubber. Nobody ever saw old Dan inside the cab, that is, all in. He always had his head out of the window, said he could see better though the wind used to send the water trickling down from the old blue eyes, and generally there were two little white streaks on his cheeks where no grime or coal dust ever got a chance at a stranglehold on the skin crevices. For the rest, what you could see sticking out of the cab over the whirling rod as he came down the straight was just a black, greasy, peaked cap surmounting a scanty fringe of gray hair and a wizened face with a round little knob in the center of it for a nose. But that isn't altogether old Dan McCaffrey, either. There was Mrs. McCaffrey. Everybody liked Dan, with his smile and the cheery way he had of puckering up his lips sympathetically and pushing back his cap and scratching near his ear where the hair was, as he listened, maybe, to a hard-luck story. Everybody liked Dan but they swore by Mrs. McCaffrey. Leaving out the railroaders who worshipped her anyway, even the worst characters in Big Cloud, and there were some pretty bad ones in those early days, hangers-on and touts for the gambling hells and dives, 
used to speak of the little old lady in the lace cap with a sort of veneration. Lace cap? Yes, sounds queer, doesn't it? An engineer's wife, keeping his shanty in a rough-and-ready, half-baked bit of an uncivilized town in the shadow of the Rockies, and a lace cap. Don't go together very often. That's a fact. But it is equally a fact that Mrs. McCaffrey wore a lace cap, and somehow none of the other women ever had a word to say about her being stuck up, either. There was something patrician about Mrs. McCaffrey, not the cold standoffish effect that's only make-believe, but the real thing. The Lord knows she had to work hard enough, but you never saw her rinsing the wash-tub suds from her hands and coming to the door with her sleeves rolled up. Not at all. The last thing you'd ever think there was in that house was a wash-tub. Little lace cap over smoothly parted gray hair, little black dress with a little white frill around the throat, and just a glad look on her face whether she'd ever seen you before or not. That was Mrs. McCaffrey. As far back as anyone could remember, she had always looked like that, always a little old lady, never a young woman, although she and Dan had come there years before, even before the operating department had got the steel shaken down into anything that might with justice be called a permanent right of way. Perhaps it was the gray hair. Mrs. McCaffrey's hair had been gray then, when it ought to have been the glossy, luxuriant brown that the old-fashioned daguerreotype hanging in the shanty's combination dining and sitting room proclaimed that it once was. Big Cloud, of course, didn't call her patrician, because they didn't talk that way out there. They said there was some class to Mrs. McCaffrey, and if their expression was inelegant, what they meant by it wasn't. Not that they ranked her any finer than Dan, for the last one of them ranked Dan as one of God's own noblemen. And there's nothing finer than that, only they figured, at least the women did, that back in the old country she'd been brought up to things that Dan McCaffrey hadn't. Maybe that accounted for their sending young Dan east, and pinching themselves pretty near down to bedrock to give the boy an education and a start. Not that Mrs. McCaffrey had any notions that railroading and overalls and dirt was plebeian and beneath her, far from it. She was proud of old Dan, proud of his work, proud of his record. She'd talk about Dan's engine to you by the hour, just as though it were alive, just as Dan would, and she would have hung chintz curtains on the cab windows and put flower pots on the running boards if they had let her. It wasn't that. Mrs. McCaffrey wasn't that kind. Only there were limitations to a cab, and she didn't want the boy, he was the only one they had, to start out with limitations of any kind that would put a slow order on his reaching the goal her mother's heart dreamed of. What goal? Who knows? Mothers always dream of their boy's future in that gentle, loving, all-conquering-up-in-the-clouds kind of way, don't they? She wanted young Dan to do something, make a name for himself some day. And young Dan did. He handed a jolt to the theory of heredity that should, if it didn't, have sent the disciples of that creed to the mat for the full count. When he got through his education, he got into a bank and backed the brain development the old couple had scrimped to the bone to give him against the market, with five thousand dollars of the bank's money. Old Dan and Mrs. McCaffrey got him off, 
Mrs. McCaffrey with her sweet old face, and Dan with his grim old honesty. The bank didn't prosecute. The boy was drowned in a ferryboat accident the year after, and old Dan had been paying up ever since. He was always paying up. Five thousand dollars, even in installments for a whole lot of years, didn't leave much to come and go on from his monthly paycheck. He talked some of dropping the benefit orders he belonged to, and he belonged to most of them. But Mrs. McCaffrey talked him out of that on account of the insurance, she said. But uh, really because she knew that Dan and his lodge rooms and his regalias and his worshipful titles were just part and parcel of each other, and that he either was or was just going to be supreme, high, chief, illustrious, something or other, of every order in town. Besides, after all, it didn't cost much compared with the other, just meant pinching a tiny bit harder. And so they pinched. Old Dan and Mrs. McCaffrey didn't talk about their troubles. You'd never get the blues on their account, no matter how intimate you got with them. But everybody knew the story, of course, for everybody knows a thing like that, and everybody knew that dollars were scarce up at the McCaffrey's shanty, for though they didn't know how much old Dan sent east each year, they knew it had to be a pretty big slice of what was coming to him to make much impression on that five thousand dollars at the other end. And they wondered, naturally enough, how the McCaffrey's got along at all. But the McCaffrey's got along, somehow, outwardly without a sign of the hurt that was deeper than a mere matter of dollars and cents, got along through the years, and Mrs. McCaffrey got a little grayer, a little more gentle and patient and sweet-faced, and old Dan's hair narrowed to a fringe like a broken tonsure above his ears, and... But there's our clearance now, and we're off with a clean-swept track and the rights through into division. Dan was handling the cab end of one of the local passenger runs when things broke loose in the east, a flurry in Wall Street. But Wall Street was a long, long way from the Rockies, and though the papers were full of it, there didn't seem to be anything intimate enough in a battle of brokers and magnets, bitter, prolonged, and to the death though it might be, to stir up any excitement or enthusiasm on the Hill Division. The Hill Division, generally speaking, had about all it could do to mind its own affairs without bothering about those of others, for the Rockies, if conquered, took their subjection with bad grace and were always in an incipient state of insurrection that kept the operating, the motive power, and the maintenance of way departments close to the verge of nervous prostration without much let-up to speak of. But when the smoke cleared away down east, the Hill Division and Big Cloud forgot their bridge troubles and their washouts and their slides long enough to stick their tongues in their cheeks and look askance at each other. And Carleton, in his swivel chair, pulled on the amber mouthpiece of his briar and looked at Regan, who in turn pulled on his scraggly brown mustache and reached for his hip pocket and his plug. The system was under new control. "'Who's H. Harrington Campbell when he's at home?' sputtered Regan. "'Our new general manager, Tommy,' Carleton told him for the second time. Regan grunted. "'I ain't blind. I've read that much. Who is he? Hmm? Know him?' Carleton took the pipe from his mouth, a little seriously. "'It's the P.M. and K. crowd, Tommy. 
Makes quite an amalgamation, doesn't it? Direct Eastern Tidewater Connection, what? They're a younger lot, pretty progressive, too, and sharp as they make them. I don't care a hoot who owns the stock, observed Regan, biting deeply at his blackstrap. It's the bucko with the overgrown name in the center that interests me. Who's he? Do you know him? Yes, said Carleton slowly. I know him. He got up suddenly and walked over to the window, looked out into the yards for a moment, then turned to face the master mechanic. I know him, and I know most of the others. And I'll say, between you and me, Tommy, that I'm blamed sorry they've got their fingers on the old road. They're a cold, money-grabbing crew, and Campbell's about as human as a snowman, only not so warm-blooded. I fancy you'll see some changes out here. He turned down an offer from the pen last week, said the fat little master mechanic reminiscently. Maybe I... Carlton laughed. He could afford to. There was hardly a road in the country, but had made covetous offers for the services of the cool-eyed master of the Hill Division, who was the idol of his men down to the last car tink. No, I guess not, Tommy. Our heads are safe enough, I think. When I go, you go. And as the P.M. and K. have been after me before, I guess they'll let me alone now that I'm on their payroll. What kind of changes, then? inquired Regan gruffly. I don't know, said Carleton. I don't know, Tommy. New crowd, new ways. We'll see. And in time, Regan saw. Perhaps Regan himself, together with Riley the trainmaster, were unwittingly the means of bringing it about a little sooner than it might otherwise have come. Perhaps not. Ultimately, it would have been all the same. Sentiment and H. Harrington Campbell were not on speaking terms. However, one way or the other, in results, it makes little difference. It was natural enough that about the first official act of the new directors should be a trip to look over the new property they had acquired, and if there was any resentment on the Hill Division at the change in ownership, there was no sign of it in Big Cloud when the word went out of what was coming. On the contrary, Everybody sort of figured to make a kind of holiday affair of it, for the special was to lay off there until afternoon to give the big fellows a chance to see the shops. Anyway, it was more or less mutually understood that they were to be given the best the Hill Division had to offer. Regan kept his pet flyer, the 1608, in the roundhouse and tinkered over her for two days, and sent for Dan McCaffery. There had been a good deal of speculation amongst the engine crews as to who would get the run, and the men were hot for the honor. Regan squinted at old Dan and squinted at the 1608 on the pit beside him. "'How do you think she looks, Dan?' he inquired casually. The old engineer ran his eyes wistfully over the big racer, groomed to the minute like the thoroughbred it was. "'She'll do you proud, Regan,' he said simply. And then Regan's fat little hand came down with a bang on the other's overall shoulder. That was Regan's way. "'And you too, Dan,' he grinned. "'I've got you slated for the run.' "'Me,' said McCaffrey, his wizened face lighting up. "'You, sure.' Regan's grin expanded. "'It's coming to you, ain't it? You're the senior engineer on the division, aren't you? Well, then, what's the matter with you? Riley's doing the same for Pete Chartrand. He's putting Pete in the aisles. What?' Old Dan looked at Regan, then at the 1608, and back at Regan again. Say, he said a little huskily, the missus will be pleased when I tell her. 
we was talking it over last night and, and hoping uh, just hoping mind you that that maybe well go tell her then said the little master mechanic who didn't need any word picture to make him see mrs mccaffrey's face when she heard the news and he gave the engineer a friendly push doorwards not a very big thing to pull the latch on the director's special nothing to make a fuss over well no perhaps not not unless you were a railroad man it meant quite a bit to dan mccaffery though and quite a bit to mrs mccaffery because it was an honor coming to dan and it meant something to regan too call it a little thing but little things count a whole lot too sometimes in this old world of ours don't they there had been a sort of little program mapped out. Regan, as naturally fell to his lot, being master mechanic, was to do the honors of the shops, and Carleton was to make the run up through the Rockies and over the division with the new directors. But at the last moment a telegram sent the superintendent flying east to a brother's sickbed, and the whole kit and caboodle of the honors, to his inward consternation and dismay, fell to Regan. Regan, however, did the best he could, he fished out the black Sunday suit he wore on the rare occasions when he had time to know one day of the week from the other, wriggled into a boiled shirt and a stiff collar that was yellow for want of daylight, and, nervous as a galvanic battery, was down on the platform an hour before the train was due. Also, by the time the train rolled in, Regan's handkerchief was wringing wet from the sweat he mopped off his forehead. But five minutes after that, the earnest little master mechanic, as he afterwards confided to Carleton, wouldn't have given a whoop for two trainloads of em, let alone the measly lot you could crowd into one private car. Somehow Regan had got it into his head that he was going on his mettle before a crowd of up-to-the-minute, way-up railroaders, but what he found there wasn't a practical railroad man amongst them, bar H. Harrington Campbell, to whom he promptly and wholeheartedly took a dislike. Regan experienced a sort of pity and contempt, which, if it passed over the nabob's heads without doing them any harm, had at least the effect of putting the fat little master mechanic almost superciliously at his ease. Inspect the shops? Not at all. They were out for a joyride across the continent, and the fun there was in it. How long we got here? Three hours? Wow! boomed a big fellow, stretching his arms lazily as he gazed about them. <laughs> Let's paint the town, boys! wheezed an asthmatic, bow-legged little man of fifty who sported an enormous gold watch-chain. "'Come on and look the natives over!' Regan, who had been a little hazy on the etiquette of chewing in select company, reached openly for his plug, and kind of squinted over it non-committingly as he bit in at H. Harrington Campbell, who stood beside him. Carleton had sized the new general manager up pretty well, cold as a snowman, and he looked it. H. Harrington Campbell was a spare-built man, with sharp, quick, black eyes, a face like a hawk, and lips so thin you wouldn't know he had any if one corner of his mouth hadn't been pried kind of open, so to speak, with the stub of a cigar. "'Go ahead and amuse yourself, boys,' H. Harrington Campbell talked out of the corner of his mouth where the cigar was. "'We pull out at twelve-thirty sharp.' Then to Regan curtly, "'Well, look, the equipment and shops over, Mr. Regan.' "'Yes, uh, sure,' agreed Regan, without much enthusiasm, and led the way across the tracks toward the roundhouse as a starting point for the inspection tour. 
The whole blamed thing was different from the way Regan had figured it out in his mind beforehand, but Regan set out to make himself agreeable, and H. Harrington Campbell listened. H. Harrington Campbell was the greatest listener Regan had ever met, and Regan froze, and then Regan thawed out again, but not on account of H. Harrington Campbell. Regan might have an unresponsive audience, but then Regan didn't require an audience at all to warm him up when it came to his roundhouse and his big mountain racers and the shops he lay awake at night planning and thinking about. Here and there H. Harrington Campbell shot out a question, crisp, incisive, unexpected, and lapsed into silence again. That was all. They inspected everything, everything there was to inspect. But when they got through, Regan had about as good an idea of what impression it had made on H. Harrington Campbell as he had when he started out, which is to say, none at all. The new general manager just listened. Regan had done all the talking. Not that H. Harrington Campbell sized up as a misfit. Not by any means. Far from it. Regan didn't make that mistake for a minute. He didn't need to be told that the other knew railroading from the ground up. He could feel it. But he didn't need to be told, either, that the other was more a high-geared efficiency machine than he was a man. He could feel that, too. One word of praise Regan wanted, not for himself, but for the things he loved and worked over, and into which he put his soul. And the one word, where a thousand were due, Regan did not get. The new general manager had the emotional instincts of a wooden Indian. Regan, toward the end of the morning, got to talking a little less himself, that is, aloud. Inwardly, he grew more eloquent than ever, cholerically so. It was train time when they had finished, and the 1608, with old Dan McCaffrey, half out of the cab window as usual, had just backed down and coupled on the special, as Regan and the new general manager came along the platform from the upper freight sheds and Regan, for all his inward spleen, couldn't help it as they reached the big powerful racer, spick and span from the guard plates up. "'I don't know where you'll beat that, east or west,' said Regan proudly, with a wave of his hand at the 1608. "'Wish we had more of that type out here. We could use them. What do you think of her, Mr. Campbell, hmm?' H. Harrington Campbell didn't appear to take any notice of the masterpiece of machine design to speak of. His eyes traveled over the engine and fixed on Dan McCaffrey in the cab window. Dan had an old but spotless suit of overalls on, spotless because Mrs. McCaffrey, who was even then modestly sharing her husband's honors from the back of the crowd by the ticket office window, had made them spotless with a good many hours' work the day before, for grease sticks hard even in a wash-tub, and on old Dan's wizened face was a genial smile that would have got an instant response from anybody except H. Harrington Campbell. H. Harrington Campbell didn't smile. Neither did he answer Regan's question. "'How old are you?' said he bluntly to Dan McCaffrey. "'Me?' said old Dan, taken back for a moment. Then he laughed. "'Blessed if I know, sir. So long since I kept track of my birthdays. Sixty-one, I guess. No, no, sixty-two. H. Harrington Campbell.' didn't appear to hear the old engineer's answer any more than he had appeared to take any notice of the 1608. He had barely paused in his walk, and he was pulling out his watch now and looking at it as he continued along the platform, only to glance up again as Pete Chartrand, the senior conductor, gray-haired, gray-bearded, but dapper as you please in his blue uniform and brass buttons, 
hurried by toward the cab with the green tissue copy of the engineer's orders in his hand. Regan opened his mouth to say something, and instead snapped his jaws shut like a steel trap. The last little bit of enthusiasm had oozed out of the usually good-natured little master mechanic. Two days tinkering with the 1608, the division all keyed up to a smile, everybody trying to do his best to please, a dozen little intimate plans and arrangements talked over and worked out, were all now a matter of earnest and savage regret to Regan. "'By Christmas!' growled Regan to himself as he elbowed his way through the crowd on the platform, for the town, to the last squaw with a papoose strapped on her back, had turned out to see the director's special off. "'By Christmas, if twere not for Carlton's sake, I'd tell him the little tin god that he thinks he is, what I think of him, and maybe,' added Regan viciously, as he swung aboard the observation car behind H. Harrington Campbell, "'and maybe I will yet.' But Regan's cup, brimming as he held it to be, was not yet full. It was a pretty swell train, the director's special, that the crowd sent off with a burst of cheering that lasted until the markers were lost to view around a butte. A pretty swell train, about the swellest that had ever decorated the train sheet of the Hill Division. Two sleepers, a diner and observation, mostly mahogany, and the baggage car a good enough imitation to fit into the color scheme without outraging even the most aesthetic taste, and the 1608 on the front end, gold-leafed and shining like a mirror from polished steel and brass. As far as looks went, there wasn't a thing the matter with it, not a thing. It would have pulled a grin of pride out of a Polak section hand, which is pulling some. And there wasn't anything the matter with the send-off, either. That was propitious enough to satisfy anybody. But for all that, barring the first hour or so out of Big Cloud, trouble and the director's special that afternoon were as near akin as twin brothers. Nothing went right. Everything went wrong, except the 1608. That ran as smooth as a full jeweled watch, when old Dan, for the mix-up behind him, could run her at all. The coupling on the diner broke. That started it. When they got that fixed, something else happened. And then the forward truck of the baggage car developed a virulent attack of hot box. The special had the track swept for her clean to the western foothills and rights through. But she didn't need them. Her progress was a crawl. The directors, in spite of their dollar ante and the roof of the observation car for the limit, began to lose interest in their game. "'What is this new toy we've bought?' inquired one of them plaintively. "'A funeral procession?' Even H. Harrington Campbell began to show emotion. He shifted his cigar stub at intervals from one corner of his mouth to the other. Regan was hot, both ways, inside and out, hotter a whole lot than the hot box he took his coat off to, and helped old Pete Chartrand and the train crew slosh buckets of water over every time the director's special stopped, which was frequently. It wasn't old Pete's fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. It was just blamed hard luck, and it lasted through the whole blamed afternoon. And by the time they pulled into Elk River, where Regan had wired for another car and had transferred the baggage, the director's special, as far as temper went, was as touchy as a man with a bad case of gout. As they coupled on the new car, Regan spoke to old Dan in the cab. Spoke from his heart. We're two hours late, Dan, hm? For the love of Mike, let her out and do something. 
That bunch back there's getting so damn polite to me you'd think the words would melt in their mouths. What? Old Dan puckered his face into a reassuring smile under the peak of his greasy cap. I guess we're all right now we've got rid of that car, he said. You leave it to me. Just leave it to me, Regan. Pete Chartrand, savage as though the whole matter were a personal and direct affront, reached up with a new tissue to the cab window. Two hours and ten minutes late, he snapped out. Nice, ain't it, director special? All the swells were doing ourselves proud. Oh, hell! Keep your shirt on, Pete, said Regan, somewhat inconsistently. Losing your hair over it won't do any good. You're not to blame, are you? Well, then, forget it. Two hours and ten minutes late. Bad enough but in itself nothing disastrous. It wasn't the first time in railroading that schedules had gone a-glimmering. Only there was more to it than that. There were not a few other trains, fast freights, passengers, locals, and work trains, whose movements and the movements of the director's special were intimately connected one with the other. Two hours and ten minutes was sufficient, a whole lot more than sufficient, to play havoc with a dispatcher's carefully planned meeting points over a hundred miles of right-of-way, and all afternoon Donkin had been chewing his lips over his train sheet back in the dispatcher's office at Big Cloud, until the director's special, officially Special 117, had become a nightmare to him. Orders, counter-orders, cancellations, new orders had followed each other all afternoon, and now a new batch went out, as the rehabilitated special went out of Elk River, and Bob Donkin, with a sigh of relief at the prospect of clear sailing ahead, pushed his hair out of his eyes and relaxed a little as he began to give back the completes. It wasn't Donkin's fault. There was never so much as a hint that it was. The day man at Mitre Peak forgot. That's all, but it's a hard word the hardest there is in railroading. There was a lot of traffic moving that afternoon and with sections, regulars and extras all trying to dodge Special 117. They were crowding each other pretty hard and the day man at Mitre Peak forgot. It was edging dusk as old Pete Chartrand from the Elk River platform lifted a finger to old Dan McCaffrey in the cab and old Dan, with a sort of grim smile at the knowledge that the honor of the Hill Division, what there was left of it as far as Special 117 was concerned, was up to him, opened out the 1608 to take the rights they'd given him afresh for all there was in it. From Elk River to Mitre Peak, where the right-of-way crosses the divide, is a fairly stiff climb. From Mitre Peak to Eagle Pass at the canyon bed, it is an equally emphatic drop and the track in its gyrations around the base of the towering, jutting peaks, where it clings as a fly clings to a wall, is an endless succession of short tangents and shorter curves. The Rockies, as has been said, had been harnessed, but they had never been tamed, nor never will be. Silent, brooding always, there seems a sullen patience about them, as though they were waiting warily to strike. There are stretches, many of them, where no more than a hundred yards will blot utterly one train from the sight of another, where the thundering reverberations of the one, flung echoing back and forth from peak to peak, drown utterly the sounds of the other. And west of Mitre Peak it is like this, 
and the operator at Mitre Peak forgot the holding order for extra freight number 69. It came quick, quick as the winking of an eye, sudden as the crack of doom. Extra freight number 69 was running west, too, in the same direction as the director's special. Only extra number 69 was a heavy train, and she was feeling her way down the grade like a snail, while the director's special, with the spur and proud of her own delinquency and misbehavior, was hitting up the fastest clip that old Dan, who knew every inch of the road with his eyes shut, dared to give within the limits of safety on that particular piece of track. It came quick. Ten yards clear on the right-of-way, then a gray wall of rock, a short, right-angled dive of the track around it, and as the pilot of the 1608 swung the curve, old Dan's heart for an instant stopped its beat. Three red lights focused themselves before his eyes, the tail lights on the caboose of extra number 69. There was a yell from little Billy Dawes, his fireman. My God, Dan, we're into her! Dawes yelled, we're into her! cool old veteran, one of the best that ever pulled a throttle in any cab. There was a queer smile on old Dan McCaffrey's lips. He needed no telling that disaster he could not avert, could only in a measure mitigate, perhaps, was upon them. But even as he checked, checked hard, and checked again, the thought of others was uppermost in his mind, the train crew of the freight, some of them anyway in the caboose. Dawes was beside him now, almost at his elbow, as nervy and as full of grit as the engineer he'd shoveled for for five years and thought more of than he did of any other man on earth. And for the fraction of a second, old Dan McCaffrey looked into the other's eyes. Give the boys in the caboose a chance for their lives, Billy, in case they ain't seen or heard us, he shouted in the fireman's ears. Hold that whistle lever down. Twenty yards, fifteen between them, the 1608 in the reverse, bucking like a maddened bronco, old Dan working with all the craft he knew at his levers, ten yards, and two men scurrying like rats from a sinking ship leaped from the tail of the caboose to the right away. Jump! The word came like a half-sob from old Dan. There was nothing more that any man could do, and he followed his fireman through the gangway. End of chapter 6, part 1